Brian Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. We here at the podcast are just as happy as you are that 2020 is in the rearview mirror. The studio is a ghost town for six months, and I'm happy to say we're filming multiple projects now. Along the way, we had to re-engineer our entire HVAC system to provide for the safety of our movie crews. Yeah, I'm looking forward to 2021 bringing us all a little more prosperity. We begin our second year of this podcast, and I'm as excited today as I was in the beginning. Thank you for listening in, and know that we definitely appreciate you being here with us. Have you ever wanted to be a singer? Thought you didn't have the chops? Well, in Atlanta, we've got a secret weapon, and she's called Mama Jan. If you've seen Justin Bieber's first film, Never Say Never, you've seen Mama Jan. If you've listened to, say, Usher, Shania Twain, Rob Thomas, or Jill Scott, then you've heard her work. Mama Jan, or MJ as she calls herself, is a nationally recognized singer, songwriter, musician. Jan Smith is also a Grammy-nominated producer, Georgia Music Hall of Fame inductee, and a multi-platinum certified vocal coach, vocal producer, who has tended to some of the most distinctive voices in the business. Listen up, because Mama Jan is in the house. This is Ryan Millsap. Welcome to the Black Hawk Studios podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Mama Jan Smith, world-famous producer and a musician in her own right. Mama Jan, welcome to the Black Hawk Studios podcast. Thanks very much, Ryan. It's great to be with you. I know you're going to get, you get this question all the time, but when did you get the name Mama Jan? So it just came about as a progression of working with different artists and um, caring about them, nurturing them. And then there was a young man named Usher Raymond who came in and started hearing my other clients say, I'll see you next week, Mama. And then he took it national and everybody started calling me that. So it is the, uh, the proud moniker now of everything I do. How many years ago is that? Whew. I've known Usher since he was 17. I think he's, uh, I don't even know how old he is now, 38, <laughs> something like and, that. And how did you get started in the music industry yourself? As an artist. Uh, I was that kid who was born uh, hearing in color. So everything in God's universe was always my symphony. I, I imitated everything that you could imagine. Motorboat sounds, cars going by, birds outside. Tarzan, uh, you know, the old Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan show was great because of the sounds from Africa. So I uh, imitated sounds and started writing little songs and things when I was six or seven and playing ukulele, then guitar. Then I cut my first record when I was 15, blah, blah, blah. And here we are today working in studios and with other artists. 
so when you tell me that story about being young and the world being alive in music, that feels very spiritual to me. How do you relate that to your spirituality? And how, do you, how does that carry over? Like, do, do you still see the world like that? Have you been able to retain that youthful imagination? Useful? I don't know. I think I've lived and learned a lot. But in terms of it being spiritual, uh, my explanation for that is God created the universe. And so it is spiritual to me. Sound, God created the universe by, by speaking. So it was the sound of his voice and my belief that actually created everything that we know. Sound to me, music to me is the closest thing to God that I know. And creating that is amazing because uh, there is literally a symphony that exists. You, if you walk outside, you, you, you not only see it with your eyes, with all the color, but hearing it in color also just expands on that sound platform that becomes the soundtrack of our lives, so to speak. So is it still a spiritual experience for me? Absolutely it is. Every time I create music, I feel like I'm doing what I was created to do, and that's to create. Do you experience most artists as somehow being closer to God? You mean, do I think they are? Yeah, do you experience artists, like artists in general? Like, do you, do you attribute uh, their artistic abilities to somehow having a, a connection to the universe in a way that other people don't have? And do you think that's mm. like some sort of spiritual plane I do. I don't know that they all would recognize it or describe it the same way that I do, nor do I think that they would believe uh, necessarily the same way that I do. But I do think that most artists recognize the, the spirituality of of music and creativity. There is a there is a sense in in most artists that I that I work with that that it's a a yearning, a unique thing to be able to do that to create, and and not just um, not just auditory artists but also visual artists when they're creating it it, it uh, most people embrace it as a gift of some sort and i think the the public in general sees it as something special you know i think that people are gifted who are seamstresses because i can't sew worth a flip but but that's not seen or heralded as, as the same kind of gift as being able to write a song and sing um so there's something magic about it there's something special i think how do you help an artist who comes to you with like some sort of artistic block? How do you help them tap back into that magic? Is that something mm. that you've ever had to deal with? I do. Um, my, you know, my background in psychology helps a little bit just by being able to meet people where they are. I think that part of that, when, when artists get gnarled up, it, it's usually uh, emotional stuff that's going on or they're frustrated or they're, they're feeling um um, alone or isolated, which most artists are in some some capacity by by virtue of what they do uh, it's necessary sometimes for them to be isolated to to protect them, especially those of of greater you know popularity and and celebrity status but um, it, it's a matter of helping them to work through whatever is blocked up to get them grounded again and also to open them back up to their own creative process. Sometimes it's really just a matter, Ryan, of, of listening to them because I don't know that they often feel like they're heard other than on a stage. So being able to tap into the heart of who they are and giving them someone that they can trust seems to be my role oftentimes. And, it, and that matters a whole lot, I think, in the exchange because I don't want to say I, I do what I do for a living, but I don't love them for money. 
I care about who they are. Well, you seem like a shepherding soul mm-hmm. in many ways. You know, it's very pastoral. Obviously, you have mm-hmm. to have a lot of technical musical skill. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's all this psychology and spirituality and relationality woven into what you do that is the kind of magic of coaching or mm-hmm. pastoring or whatever it is that is soul shepherding. Mm-hmm. Do you relate to that? If I say, you're a soul shepherd, does that feel right? <laughs> I, I'm going to quote you on that. I kind of like that. Yeah, I think I think it, uh, shepherding or, or, or stewarding, uh, being a good steward, the work that I feel like God brings to me uh, that's laid in front of me, sometimes it's just to help somebody through a certain process. Sometimes it may be for years and years that I'm involved in their, their lives and careers. But uh, I, I, love, I love what you just said, so I'm going to coin you on that. Well, what I wonder is, at, at the beginning, you were an artist. Mm-hmm. kind of simply an artist. And then when was it that you started to realize that you found as much joy in shepherding others and helping others as you did in creating your own stuff? I don't think that that was an easy passage. And I, and I, I still claim myself as an artist. I'm going to be releasing a single that I haven't done in since 2004 just because I still need to sing and it's a part of my life. And I, and I do sing. I just don't chase that brass ring any more of, of all of that stuff. But I still perform and, and uh, do conferences and workshops and things like that and even do performances in clubs when, when I want to now. But the process of, it, it has a lot to do with the industry, the commercial music industry. At my age, you know, Clive Davis is not going to come up to me and go, hey, I'm going to make you a star. It's like, no, they're looking for 17, 21, 16-year-olds. And, and I understand that our industry is more youth-driven uh, as a celebrity platform, but there are many great artists. I mean, look at, I, I love Bonnie Raitt and Joni Mitchell and, and Bruce Springsteen and Aerosmith. And a lot of the music that I grew up on, those are still great artists that are very active in their careers. My career path changed as I began to be in studios and doing production more. I was doing background vocals, did commercial work, did a lot of things with my voice. And then realized that I was helping other people really more. And that mattered more in the scheme of, you know, what was going on musically. My music, which was really Southern rock and roll, had kind of taken a back seat to modern day pop music and R&B and hip hop. So my music really wasn't that relevant except to my own constituency, so to speak. And so my music is still relevant to those people, but in, in mass it became more important in the industry as I began to be identified as, you know, the artist whisperer, the person who could could really pull voices out of the toilet and get people back up on the road and also condition them for tours and prepping them for recording sessions and actually delivering them in the studio. So it became the demanding part of uh, my gift and Kicking and screaming, I would say, is how I came into it. But uh, uh, beginning to embrace it and recognizing the greater good is really where I'm at now in my life. And it and it uh, it's it's an incredibly cool and very humbling thing to be able to do. Where did you learn the technical side of the throat and dealing with the voice box? And I mean, did you study medicine at all, or how did you go and get all of that skill? So I work with a lot of surgeons, but I always tell people I'm not a, do- a doctor, but I have pretty good 
most of the surgeons I deal with really trust me and know that I have a pretty, uh, pretty good vernacular in them, just in, in terms of hearing it and knowing what's going on. Um, I've had to learn a lot. I, I, and I think when you stop learning, you die. So I, I just believe in, in the power of knowledge and the application of that. So for me, it, it really was an education. Uh, it still is. But but to educate myself more in the vocology and, and the art of singing, also bringing with me the background that I have in classical music. I'm a classically trained flautist and vocalist. And so it was easy to make application of some of that, but the vernacular in talking to what I call my people, street people, the musicians uh, in the contemporary world, uh, the classical vernacular doesn't translate very well. So helping bridge that gap and being able to talk with a heavy metal singer about their diaphragm and how to, you know, scream this way so that you're not tearing your throat uh, and translating that for them so that they can apply it has saved saved them and then it saves me <laughs> to be able to do more. What are some of the injuries that somebody can sustain as a singer? Because I don't know these injuries. Or, like, tell me, like, I know, I know an athlete, right? He can, he can uh, tear ligaments in his leg or twist his ankle uh-huh. or, right. But, but yeah. I don't know what's going on in the throat or all the different ways that a singer can get injured. Walk me through some of those ways. Okay. As a lady, so it's not right, as somebody coming from the outside. It's not just the singer. It's you too. You, you have vocal cords also, and you use the same two vocal cords that I use to sing with. You, you see what I'm saying? So it's mm-hmm. not, it's not just a singer. It's anybody who can sustain injury. I love the fact that you just, referenced athletes because that's what I say I do. I'm a personal trainer for vocal athletes. And I'll ask you a couple of questions. Do you know how many vocal cords you have? I'm going with uh, two. Okay, very good guess. I'll give you credit for that. Do you know where they're located? Uh, in the larynx. You're okay. you're smarter than you think you are. So, okay, yes, they are. They're located in the larynx, but they're also horizontal across your windpipe. Okay, mm-hmm. and they are made out of soft cartilage, and they're in an enclosed space. Obviously, they work by air vibration over a hundred times per second. And there's no synthetic fiber on the planet Earth as of today's date, 2021, that medical science or technology has been able to come up with that can duplicate or replace their function in your body, which I think is the dopest thing on the planet. It's amazing. So you asked me a really important question: How do you sustain injury by straining? by you can you can tear a ligament you can you know you can tear cartilage you can do what we call blow a bleeder which means a capillary in the vocal cord can burst Um, you can get sick they can be swollen strained they can harbor edema which makes you hoarse you can um, sustain those kinds of injuries obviously things like throat cancer any kind of acid or bile reflux can really burn the vocal cords up so it, it's you know screaming too loud. Um, people who are in situations if they're you know upset emotionally or they're screaming and you know they overextend the vocal cords or, or create friction. Friction creates heat. He creates swelling. All of those things that would be the same thing as if you you know pulled a, a, a ligament in your knee or your leg or your calf. What happens when I become hoarse? What it, what it actually physically is causing that? You said something that I didn't recognize. What it was. Swelling. But- Swelling. swelling, edema. I was talking about edema, which edema. is storing store, uh, storing extra fluid or swelling in the vocal cords, which makes it harder for them to thin out and create higher vibrations. So usually, if, like if you had a bad cold 
and your voice is really low and kind of scratchy, it's because the vocal cords are swollen. Got it. So if the vocal cords are swollen, then I'm unable to make all the normal variation of sound that I would do when I was speaking. Correct. And so I'm just Correct. stuck in this like paper bag of... Sort of. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah. so then in order for that to be healed, what are some of the ways that I could get over being hoarse quicker than just like waiting it out? Shut up. <laughs> no, I mean, vocal rest. You know, for example, if you remember when Adele um, had to cancel the, the, the first and, and most major tour of her, her career um, because she she had a, a vessel that burst on her vocal cord and she had to have some, she, she needed to have vocal rest. Uh, sometimes they go in and cauterize that. They, they'll, you know, burn it so that it, it closes up the, the bleeder. Sam Smith had the same thing. Kathy Matea had the same thing. Sometimes people get nodules or um, uh, like a polyp or a blister on the vocal cords and steroids uh, are, are one choice of treatment because it, it's anti-inflammatory, makes it go down. But you ha it's the same thing I had to do with Justin Bieber. In the middle of you know the My World tour, we had to take him offset, so to speak, for about 48 or 64 hours, so that they could give him steroids, which was a really serious consideration for you know a 12 or 13 year old kid. We had to we had to have downtime, so he had to be completely quiet, which is hard enough to do with an adult, but much less a 13 year old. But steroids, um, different medications can help with inflammation, and then being quiet, and then on the back side of that. It's how did we get here? What do we need to do to improve your form so that your performance doesn't suffer? If an artist has to take a moment to give their uh, vocal cords a rest, can they whisper or they actually have to act as pure silence? No, whispering is actually more violent to the vocal cords than speaking through it. So if you're hoarse, you're better off talking through it in, in the best normal capacity you can than whispering. Whispering does something very unnatural to the vocal cords and creates more irritation, believe it or not. I wonder if there's a spiritual lesson there. <laughs> I'm sure there is. <laughs> yeah, be still, be still and know. Yeah, shut up and listen. Yeah, well, I, what I was thinking was, you know, maybe we shouldn't be whispering. Maybe we should only be speaking things that we're willing to say at a normal, normal tone. Um, but that's a completely different. That's a completely my, different conversation. My ninety-one-year-old mother says you have two ears and one mouth. That means you're supposed to listen twice as much as you're supposed to talk. <laughs> Wise woman. So yeah. you grew up in Atlanta. You've seen the Atlanta music scene your your entire life. What are what are some of the major uh, milestones and stories that you think of when you think of what you've seen and and specifically the Atlanta music scene? Wow. Um, how long you got? I mean, you know, because I grew up in the South and grew up in, in Southern, you know, Southern gospel churches, you know, I was influenced by, but really the, what I call the, the dirt, the soil, the, um, the life and breath of the South ha has a lot of history in it. And, and that came out of a lot of different kinds of settings and strife and people working hard and tilling the land and, uh, live together. To me, the music in the South has has a fervor. It has a feel. It has a, a soul um, that maybe some other places don't really have naturally. The Allman Brothers, uh, Janis Joplin, obviously Woodstock era, you know, 
groups, but in the South, you know, Wet Willie, uh, uh, Bonnie Raitt, Delbert McClinton, and then great gospel singers who came through, Otis Redding out of the South, James Brown. So that music really shaped me and, and helped me to, my, my own sound came out of that. It grew out of that. Joni Mitchell was a big influence, but um, I mean, I did work with a lot of those artists. Uh, I did a lot of background vocals with Atlanta Rhythm Section and, and working with Rodney Mills and uh, Buddy Bowie, who's no longer with us, but Rodney is, and uh, Leonard Skinner. But, you know, just being exposed to the people who were shaping those sounds shaped me a lot in my music. So um, being honored to, you know, like I said, do background vocals and performing with some of those uh, those acts those would be the milestones for me. I, I think a, a huge milestone was being um, inducted into the Georgia Music Hall of Fame. That was an incredible thing for me. It was an honor to be considered, you know, a Georgia staple uh, in the in the Georgia Music Hall of Fame. So those are kind of the big boom booms if you, if there are some. You know, one of the things that I think has been interesting this year, uh, specifically with all of the Black Lives Matter protests and just the race tensions that are, that are going on in America. One of the things that I think is unique in Atlanta, and I think you've experienced a lot of, is how good the African-American and Caucasian relationships are. The black-white relationships in Atlanta are fantastic. Now, there were some protests or whatever. I think that some of that was just national spillover. But talk a little bit about how much beautiful, non-racist integration you've seen in in the Atlanta music scene over the years? You know, music doesn't have a color. It includes all colors. And and that's not to take away from the importance of, of people having an ethnicity and a, and, and a, a pride in their ethnicity, ethnicity and, and for people to be able to uh, express that. But working together with other musicians has never been a for me personally it's never been a color choice it's always been about the talents of the people it's always been about the the merger of of joining our gifts together and working together for the greater good of the song or the recording session and and dope musicians are dope musicians it has nothing to do like a piano has you know black and white keys and i tell my clients all the time when we're working on intervals it could be all black or all white or pink or all yellow. It doesn't matter. It's about the space of sound. It's about the sound. And to me in the South, I think we've, I think we've gotten a bad rap, if you want to know the truth, that because of past history, the South is always, oh, it's South, it's Dixie, it's that. It's like, wait a minute. We actually are the people who had to come together and and learned and, and we've lived off the land and we've done a lot of things together maybe there's some forgiveness you know that's still in order surely there are things where people need to understand each other better and learn how to accept each other and love each other but by and large musicians have always worked together always because we love the music more than we love the platform or the politics what are some of the most interesting juxtapositions of interest that you've seen where an artist that you say, let's say an R&B artist shows up and you're going to help them with something. And then you find out that they actually really like country music. Have you seen those kind of juxtapositions and, and can you give me any sure. examples of like, yeah. Um, and also, especially now, 
it's been really cool to see um, black artists who are country artists. I mean, used to it was just like Charlie Pride, right? He was kind of like the icon, you know, black country artist. Like, no, man, there are, you know, there, there's a kid named Breland who's amazing. He just moved to Nashville and has a deal in Nashville. And he is an amazing artist and he loves country music and, and he should. He, he, you know, he grew up on it. Well, uh, and, and why should that matter? Right. So I think that there's, I think the doors are opening more now for that. If you're asking me, do I see, you know, sometimes the juxtaposition of somebody who walks in and you think they're going to sing a certain kind of music and all of a sudden they open their mouth and they're just like, they're heavy metal screamers, like, wow. Right. Or sometimes the opposite. They think they're a heavy metal screamer and they need to be a country artist and they sound country and they would fit better in country music. So I have to work with them on that. And the acceptance of, well, you might not be as well suited as you think for being a screamer. You may love that music, but that's not what you're going to do. Yeah, I was thinking more along the lines of having somebody who's a heavy metal screamer show up. And then you find Mm -hmm. out that they're a huge fan of Adele. Oh, right. Oh, all the time. Yeah. And especially, especially in today's, in today's um, climate, because kids, I listen to music because it's a part of my industry. So I'm exposed to more of everything that's coming that, you know, just because that's, that's my ilk. But when I was growing up, you either were kind of this fan or that fan. Now kids, it's more Radio Free Europe. They're listening to everything. And, and they, they're a fan of the artist versus necessarily the music genre. So that happens all the time. I mean, all the time that that you have, you know, Lejean of Seven Dust, who's a big fan of, you know, whoever. I mean, that that and musicians pretty much are that way too. Like the guys in Florida Georgia Line are big fans of, you know, soul music or of, of rock and roll. It, it, it's not limited to just what they're doing. Uh, it's an appreciation of the creativity across platforms, across genres. What have you seen in the music industry in the last 10 years? I know the last 10 years has been a pretty uh, traumatic time of transformation, not always for the good economically on the music side. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the things that you feel like are coming out of this time, this, this, this evolution in the distribution of music? What are some of the well, trends digital, you see? Yeah, digital changed everything. Uh, for the motion picture industry too, and and so it I mean, digital technology. Uh, one of the negative things I think is it was moving so fast that the industry at large didn't keep up with it very well, and and kind of running to catch up with it had, with with the internet. And what happened was it allowed the the solo artist, the independent artist, to have really more of of a vehicle. So it competed. It started competing with, you know, the, the major labels that were always the big houses that could, you know, keep their distance and be the big bank with 100% interest and all of that. So it, it changed the economic platform and the landscape. It also changed how people are receiving music because when I was growing up, it was, you know, it was 45s and it was LPs or eight tracks. And I mean, I still have a cassette player in my studio because I've got artists that come in with street tapes. And, um, and so that still exists. And I still have, you know, Victrola's in my house with the great big, you know, huge lacquers. But the bottom line is we as a, a public don't receive our music that way anymore. We receive it on our phones or we download on our computers. Everything is in the cloud. So it's about physical product kind of going away. 
that challenged the entire industry, and it also changed how we make music. I'm a producer, and everything I do is in the box now, pretty much. I still have a console, but the bottom line is, when do you use that? It, I mean, if I want to outsource and really do huge mixes, okay, I can do it on the SSL or the Neve, but I don't have to because the software is getting so incredibly competitive, and we're able to do orchestration now on a laptop. It's crazy. I can edit vocals on an airplane. And I hope I get to fly again at some point in the future. But, you know, I think that it has opened the playing field up considerably for the artist and given them a better way of um, maybe reaching out and putting their music out there. The other issue that came with that is now the market's flooded. There, it's it, We got 400 million artists out there. And it's like, how do you ever rise above that so that people will see you? really creative it's challenging it's fun it's exciting but technology i think is the biggest thing that i would say has challenged all of us to run to keep up if i was a young artist and i came to you and i said how do i get my stuff out there how do i get discovered what is the answer to that question in 2021 get your stuff out there any way that you can i mean i know it, it may sound really cliche to say just do it but don't sit around and wait on somebody else to make something happen for you you have to take the initiative to be out there put it out there and and yes there are very uh specific things that are kind of industry standard you know putting your stuff out there doing a release being on instagram being on you know tiktok is now the whole thing uh, but uh, but the platforms that are of your generation you have to be present you have, I have to post, I have to be relevant so that I'm driving business back to the studio to feed the people who are feeding off of me. Uh, you know, I, I love my staff, but I mean, it, it's about driving that business and maintaining relevance in the eyes of the public. An artist has to do exactly the same thing. And that cell phone is their own private television station. It's like, don't let people dial in to see you and it be full of static. Give them something. Put it out there. Do what you got to do. Wasn't Justin Bieber discovered on YouTube? Is that real? It is real. Um, so Scooter was a, a young student at Emory, and he's a, a brilliant marketer, but he was also a party promoter. I mean, that's what he was doing, you know, when he was in Atlanta. And Scooter was smart enough to kind of see the, the youthful trend with the college kids in the parties that the internet was really starting to be that sort of source for entertainment. And so he was just scouring the internet and uh, he was actually looking at some artists here in Atlanta, looked at one of my uh, young artists and he saw this kid in, you know, Scranton, you know, whatever it is, uh, um, Ontario. And what was interesting about it was, I mean, the kid was good. He was good. That first little video with the little talent show at school he was good and he was, you know, sitting on street corners up there and playing guitar and all. But, but it was the, the, the little girls that were hitting that, like, several million. And if you do the math on that and kind of go, hey, well, if I light a fire under this, if there's several million here that just love this kid, how about worldwide exposure? And, and you know what? He was right. It took a couple of years to get it established and get everybody to kind of love him. But it was, it was a timing thing. I think it was the internet. 
I believe that the position in history that Justin occupies is more important than he is. I believe that with any great artist. I believe that with Elvis. I believe that with the Beatles. I believe it was Frank Sinatra or Adele or whoever. I think that the position in history, what's happening in the world at the time and in music also mattered a lot. But Scooter was very smart. Justin was truly talented and still is. And and the the merger of that with what was going on in the world, it snapped. And the Internet just went and the kids all over the world lifted him up. How old was Scooter when he discovered Justin? You know, you know what? I'll get that. I'll get that wrong. He was in his twenties. He was in his twenties. Yeah. And what did what was his background with pr- promoting music? I mean, it sounds like he was a club promoter, maybe, or a party promoter. Um, but... He was a yeah. He was a college party promoter. But Scooter also had an a, a, an artist, a rap artist named Asher Roth. Uh, that was kind of his first managerial effort, and Asher has has done well. Uh, but that was that kind of got Scooter's feet wet in terms of managing an artist and knowing, you know, how, how those ropes worked. And he was also an intern at one point over at Jermaine Dupri Studio. That's how I think he Usher. They began to be friends, and so he was around music the entire time, music and entertainment the entire time. What What does a manager actually do in music? I don't, I don't, I don't know a lot about the music industry. I mean, why do, why does a, why does an artist need a manager, like a handler? Oh, oh my goodness, they need management. <laughs> you know, well, a manager manages. Uh, it, 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 the, the ones who are really worth their salt. I mean, if you look at Scooter, he's the one who ran interference when all that stuff. You know, the promotion deals, but making sure that those wheels got turned around Justin so that he did get, you know the you know this endorsement that opportunity he's the one that wheeled and dealed and got you know the interviews and got you know all, all of the people in place around to to prop that machine up so a manager is, is pretty important they're they're worth their salt because they bring uh, and also uh procure those opportunities that are presented and, it, and sometimes they kind of keep you know stuff away they're kind of the uh the max in between also like okay let's weed through this and let's do this this and this and and kind of keeps the art focus on what the artist is supposed to be focused on right which is their art right and and so then the manager and what i'm hearing you say is the manager is both a protector a grower a coach a hustler a broker right is that it's kind of like all these things it's like the the manager takes on the artist like an asset and then manages that asset mm-hmm. the way an art um, curator might manage an art piece and get an mm-hmm. exposure and over time tell people about it and how it fits into the history like in many ways so he's promoting this artist's name and idea and uh, narrative and then also brokering all the deals about where the the, the, the artist is going to go and they still have to get him to the Greek, right? Like, you remember that old movie mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. the artist is just, you know, wild and they're just trying to figure out, like, how do we actually get them to show up and perform? So then there's mm-hmm. that, like, babysitting element, too. It sounds like a pretty dynamic, sure, <laughs> interesting, interesting <laughs> person who would take that on. Well, and I think that, you know, all of the things that you just said, a really good manager, some again, someone who's worth their salt, would be doing all of that or most of that. Um, managers, there are a lot of them who are uh, are like pimps and 
who are not uh, very worth their salt and who take advantage of young artists who don't know any better and keep them in the dark and keep them ignorant so that they can continue to, to you know, milk the money off of them. A manager makes their money off of an artist's money. And so like an art procurer, they, they are they are protecting the asset because it is an asset to them. Uh, in the same token, I think that they're supposed to be the advisor. They're supposed to have the information and be the person who uh, drives the right decision so that the artist is making too. That's not always true, but it's supposed to be. Now, you've received ridiculous amounts of awards. I mean, I don't even know where your trophy case must be, but what are the ones that you hold most dear? Hmm. Um, I, I, I appreciate what you just said. I'm very humbled by that, but there are people who clearly have uh, amassed m many more awards than me. I, I, I mentioned to you earlier that I was, uh, inducted to the Georgia Music Hall of Fame, and that's a very special award for me. I, um, received a nomination. I didn't get the actual gold statue, but I received a nomination for a production I did on a record on Justin Bieber that was in his movie that Diane Warren, who's a ridiculous, uh, songwriter, she wrote the song. That is, and have a medallion, uh, from the Academy. The, those are really special because that's, in my industry that's really directly related to the fiber of, of what we all do uh, in, in the recording industry. So, uh, but you know what, I, I can't really say that any anytime people recognize you for the work that you do or as the human being that you are, I, I really feel, I mean, I, I love the very first little trophy I got in, in a high school uh, talent show uh, when I was in the 10th grade. That was the first little trophy I ever got. And, and to me, I still have that in my trophy case um, because it because that's who I am and, and where I came from. So that's equally honoring to me. I, I treasure that one little bitty, you know, gold cup because that was my first mark as a public singer that said, hey, somebody else thinks you're thinks you're good. I mean, we want people to like us and think that we're good at what we do. So, uh, but I was going to do it no matter what. So awards are no, no awards. I'm still hopefully going to be doing what I do and doing it well. No, I, I agree with that. And I understand that. I think that's the, that's the kind of motivation that is sustainable. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause it's not external. It's like true truth of the internal state of a person. You're doing mm -hmm. things out of your own, natural organic self and out of real mm -hmm. joy and not for, mm -hmm. you know, outside applause. Sometimes mm -hmm. though, I think that it takes a certain type of person and, and, and you tell me if you think this is true or not, a certain type of person that has the motivation to become famous must have something that is an external driver in order to deal with all of the difficulty and the things that they have to overcome to try to actually achieve that level of success. I would think mm. that there would be, I think this is true in most industries, there's, there's some uh, common neuroses that appear in performers, just like there would be in hedge fund managers. I mean, you know, inside of, I, I was talking to a buddy of mine this morning, he said, I've worked on Wall Street my entire life, and I think 50% of the people are sociopaths. <laughs> right? So they are. Artists, right? And, and artists are probably not sociopaths, <laughs> but there's probably like some common neuroses that you would see in artists. What do you think those neuroses are? 
Whew. Well, you know what? Um, our industry is unusual in that uh, there aren't a lot of boundaries. Music in particular, I mean, even in the film industry, there's a, there's more boundaries perhaps than in, in music. I think music is kind of like the wide open wild west and um, people create their own ways to be successful. And um, what that does is it means that more people live a little bit on the edge, on the fringe. And also, they can get away with being a, a little bit more eccentric or uh, left or right of center. Our industry tends to be experimental with a lot of things, and so sometimes those things can become detrimental to the artist. Um, I think that money and greed uh, definitely owns its share of how people are motivated uh, and, and drawn to the industry, but, but artists by and large, are not concerned with becoming famous. Music artists want to make their music. And I deal with this all the time with my young artists when art and commerce collide. They have to deal ultimately with, do you want to live with your mother when you're 48? Or do you want to be able to sustain yourself on your art? Are you going to get a full-time job otherwise and you know enjoy music as a hobby? You have to deal with that component of, can I make this a viable commercial art form to support myself with? And to me, that's when it becomes that, you know, real neurotic or neuroses developing thing. Um, I don't know that artists, hmm, I guess they're, they're as varied as anybody else in the general public. I think that their neuroses begins to be uncovered or exacerbated by virtue of the fact that they're put on display. I, I don't think that other people have to live their lives under public scrutiny the same way that, that artists and actors do. And it is part of, it, it's part of what comes with the territory. I, I'm famous for telling Justin Bieber, this is your new normal. So, and it is our new normal. I, there's nothing normal about me. There is nothing normal about me at my age and how I live and what I do. I'm not like any other 64-year-old woman. That you know, I'm just not, uh, that, uh, except for other people in the entertainment business. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. So there is, there is a natural eccentricity, I think, that comes along with pursuing that path and not going along with herd mentality to become what everybody else thinks you need to become. And if it's neurotic, okay, I accept that. Well, I've always said around the concept of money that money is just an exponent on character. So if you want to find out the real truth about somebody, make them rich. The same is true about fame, right? I mean, that fame would be that same kind of exponent on your character where it's going to reveal all the flaws and the strengths. No doubt. But there's going to be no, no hiding. No doubt. I've always said that uh, money is a byproduct of me doing what I love most. I also agree with you about the character. I, I, I am glad, however, that I was not any more successful when I was way younger because I wasn't, I wouldn't have handled it the same way that I do now. Um, I had my own challenges and until I, you know, met God on the bathroom floor of my house, I wasn't ready to handle the rest of it. So I, I, uh, I fell pretty hard from grace myself and, and, and that teaches you something about humility. The grace of non-fame. 
the grace of grace of meeting God on the bathroom floor in your house. Sure. No. <laughs> yeah, no what, what I'm saying is that the, the, the uh, I think you're, I think it was an old country song that said I, it might even be in Garth Brooks. I thank God for unanswered prayers. Wasn't that a line? Right. Right. And so it's like the the grace of not making you famous because you weren't ready for it. You might have died on the bathroom floor if you were famous. Totally. Whereas in this situation, it was like a turning point in your life or whatever. But, um, you know, so often we think about all the things that we long for as business people to artists. And oftentimes it's the things that we don't get or the difficulties that we have to overcome that ultimately like drive our success the way that the Beatles you know, were relegated to these clubs where they just played hours and hours and hours and hours and they didn't realize it, but they were just becoming great. They were yep. refining their craft, right? But there were probably a lot of times they're like, what are we doing? Like, we're playing that bar again? <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, and, but then in retrospect- Been, was, been exactly there, done that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mama Jan, we're out of time, but this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, thanks Thank for you. sharing your wisdom and your stories. My pleasure. Hey, if people want to get a hold of you on social media, are there places to find you on the web? I'm Mama Jan Music. It's about everywhere. Well, good. I appreciate it. Have a lovely afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Great to see you. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. Thank you.